Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Followers of the podcast know that every three months or so, we return to our roots with an in-depth episode focusing on the goings-on at the Department of Justice. That week has now come round, and there's quite a lot to talk about since the last quarterly review. First and foremost, the department has opened up an investigation, or more likely investigations, of possible criminal conduct leading up to and surrounding January 6th, not by the riffraff riders on the ground, but by political actors in the White House and Congress. John Durham, the special counsel appointed by Bill Barr to look into supposed spying on the Trump campaign in 2016, is going to trial this week in his biggest charge to date, but it's one that strikes many DOJ veterans as trivial. And the work of the department is sufficiently sprawling that it overlaps with the two biggest other stories of the week, namely the bedlam at the Supreme Court surrounding the leaks in the abortion case and the country's role in helping to defend Ukraine in the war of Russian aggression. Save for its court filings and public statements, the Department of Justice can seem like a black hole. But as we learned again this week, even the darkest and farthest black hole gives off some information to observers who know how to look for and interpret the signals, which makes it all the more vital to have the take of people who have the most intimate knowledge of the department. And that's exactly the folks we call on again today in our quarterly deep dive into what's been happening at 950 Pennsylvania Avenue. And they are Katie Benner. Hello. Katie covers the Department of Justice for the New York Times. In 2018, she was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for public service for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues. Great to have you as always, Katie. Thank you. Paul Fishman. He heads Arnold and Porter's crisis management and strategic response team and is a member of the firm's white collar defense, commercial litigation, securities enforcement, and appellate practices. He's done it all at the DOJ, a line prosecutor, first assistant U.S. attorney, very senior official at Maine Justice, where he terrorized me on a (laughs) weekly basis, and the U.S. attorney for the District of New Jersey, serving from 2009 to 2017. Thanks very much, as always, for joining Paul Fishman. Always a treat to be with you, Harry. And if uh, all I need to do to terrorize you is go back to the department, I'd do it in a heartbeat. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That could happen. And Andrew Weissman, he is a professor of practice with the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law at NYU Law School. As most everyone knows, he served as lead prosecutor in Robert Mueller's special counsel's office. He wrote a book on the experience entitled Where Law Ends Inside the Mueller Investigation. Andrew also has made all the rounds at DOJ, chief of the criminal fraud section in the department from 2015 to 2019, a storied line prosecutor in the Eastern District of New York, and... I have the pleasure of announcing for the first time he has personally appeared at the Actors Studio in New York City. Always a great pleasure to welcome you back, Andrew Weissman. Nice to be here with this august team. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, and speaking of us, August team, since we last convened, when the question was, what the hell is the department doing and when will it do anything, et cetera, they've taken the major step of a federal grand jury investigation that goes beyond the insurrectionists on the ground and, most importantly, at least from their document request, covers members of the executive or legislative branches who tried to obstruct or influence the certification of the election. So that's been going on for at least a little bit. What do we know, if anything, about where that investigation stands and how quickly or slowly it may be moving? I vote for Katie because she covers the Department of Justice. Andrew and I just kibitz from 200 miles away. Exactly. She has actual knowledge, whereas we have educated (laughs) speculation. Oh, we're going with the actual knowledge requirement. Well, Katie, do you have anything to illuminate us with? Are they pedal to the metal on this? I would say that one way to look at how the Justice Department's moving on the investigation, how quickly the seriousness with which they're bringing to bear on the folks who may have contributed to January 6th, who do not actually participate in the riot, is to look at the structure of the team that's actually investigating January 6th, or what they're loosely calling inside the January 6th investigation, or J6. You had a woman in the office named Michelle Zamorin. I kind of think of her as like the engine and the fuel for everything. She was looking at every single rioter who went in. All of the 700 plus cases, most of those were Michelle and her team. Jocelyn, she is a prosecutor who then went to work doing all of the sedition cases and more complicated conspiracy cases. And now they've brought in this man named Thomas Wyndham. He comes out of Baltimore and he's a very well-respected public corruption prosecutor. And he is in charge of taking all of the information gathered by the other two teams that I mentioned and saying, what can we find? What have we discovered? What evidence do we have that leads us out of the day of the attack and back in time toward people who may have been working with some of these rioters because you always have to tie everything to a crime. And the sort of physical crime on the ground was the riot itself. And then before that, there were things like the scheme to have false documents, false fake slates of electors sent to the federal government. Now, that would be a lie. That would be also a crime, lying to the federal government about something that didn't happen, falsely saying that Joe Biden had lost the election. And so they're building always from the ground up. And the fact that they've brought in somebody specifically to do that work and take the investigation out of the day of the attack, I think shows that things are pretty serious and they're taking seriously the idea that there could be prosecutions that have nothing to do with the physical attack on Congress. And we're learning more about it every week, right? We now have the whole cache of documents that just serendipitously came to the committee, but where we have John Eastman, heretofore known as architect of the forcocked Pence theory, actually in December, trying to strong arm a Pennsylvania legislature into doing a false slate of electors, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, former supervisors might well be a crime under 371. So they've got a lot to work with. So I had a couple questions for Katie, but then I also had You a always comment. do that. You always do that like and right at the top too. Yeah. I mean, this way I can sort of use Sir Perry's role, yeah. which I know he loves. <laughs> so one, where's public integrity in all of this? Like, I mean, I'm just thinking of the structure of the department and the idea of bringing somebody from Maryland. Now, by the way, I don't know the person from Maryland and maybe they're fantastic, but you know, that wouldn't be 
maybe a natural first choice. I think if you were at the department, you might be thinking about public integrity. And when I was in the fraud section and there was a huge fraud case like Volkswagen, you know, not to take a specific, I was going to be damned if that was not something I was going to be involved in just because it fit so much within my bailiwick. And then the other, just to put cold water, potential cold water, and this goes to the educated speculation I'm just struck by having done high profile matters where Congress might have an interest. It is not a good thing if you were trying to keep a lively prospect of a criminal prosecution to be thinking that this is all going to get mucked up with a congressional investigation at the same time. So on the public integrity question, they're becoming more in the mix now. So, I mean, the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., keep in mind, they had this case for about nine weeks before they had adult supervision from Maine Justice come in and be imposed on them. And I don't say that with disrespect. They did an amazing job, but certainly they're working really independently. As you guys probably know better than I do, that creates turf wars and tensions. And it's not probably by accident that everybody now at Maine Justice who has a hand in dealing with J6 in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office is a D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office vet themselves, which I think is really important for helping to smooth over some of the tensions that cropped up after the Biden administration came in. That includes Lisa Monaco, who people talk about Merrick Garland a lot, but if you don't care about this investigation, you want to think about where it's going to go knowing how Lisa Monaco thinks is probably the best thing to do because she's already helped make decisions like bringing in Thomas Wyndham. She's already helped smooth over tensions between National Security Division and the U.S. Attorney's Office, and she's allocating resources and making you know judgment calls. So Lisa is a D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office vet. Her top deputy, John Carlin, is a D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office vet. The head of He's the leaving Security, though, right? He is leaving, but not until, I think, July. The head of NSD, Matt Olson, is a U.S. Attorney's Office vet, and they like him a lot there. He gets along great with Matt Graves. This has been very helpful because this was not always the case before Olson got there in the fall. And then if you look at the crim division, they are thinking about how to create a liaison between crim at Maine Justice and Public Integrity and the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And I do know that, you know, some of the names being batted around, it's not going to surprise you, they're all D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office vets, which is just as important a qualification, I think, right now in terms of working with some speed and working as seamlessly as possible as literally anything else. So that, I think, is when you say public integrity, I do know they're gearing up there because they're thinking about who is going to be the liaison between the two offices. So let me make two observations, I think, about Merrick Garland's experience when he was in the DAG's office back in the Clinton administration, particularly in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing, right? First of all, the biggest investigations in the country at the time that I can recall were the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, it was the Atlanta bombing, Richard Jewell, it was the Oklahoma City bombing. And Merrick was the pay dad, the principal associate deputy attorney general for much of that time, right? It was a job he took when Jamie Gorelick became the dag in the spring of 1994. Uh, and he stayed in that role until he was confirmed in the D.C. Circuit sometime in 1997. So his experience of the role of the dag's office, and this dovetails with what Katie was just saying, is that the dag's office doesn't take operational control of those investigations, but is enormously plugged in playing a coordinating function when there are lots of different moving parts in lots of different places involving various department components. And it's one that the attorney general himself now and the DAG really have to pay very close attention to. So that's the model that the department ran on 
in the time that, that, that Merrick Garland was in that building. The second is, and people forget this a little bit, that when, when Merrick went out to Oklahoma City after the bombing, um, he was going to stay out there. He testified to this at his hearings. He wanted to stay out there to, to actually try the case and eventually came back when he got nominated to the D.C. Circuit. But before he came back, the question was going to be who was going to be lead counsel in that case? What was that trial team going to look like? You know, the case was going to be tried in, in Denver for change of venue rules, but in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Oklahoma City, they were all recused because they'd all had friends and family members and colleagues who had been killed in the attack on the building. And so in those days, there wasn't email yet. It was a nationwide teletype, basically, that went out to all the U.S. attorneys in the country saying, please tell us if you have someone who is awesome, who can be lead counsel in that case. And ultimately, it was Joe Hartzler, who was a prosecutor in the Southern or Central District of Illinois, who came into town and try that case. And the team ultimately consisted of a bunch of people from different places around the country, including Beth Wilkinson, who'd been in the Eastern District of New York and in the criminal division, and a guy named Larry Mackey, who was from Indiana. They all went out to at Donna Busella, who was at the executive office for U.S. attorneys and later became the U.S. attorney in Tampa. So Merrick is used to, in high-profile cases, bringing together people who are stars from various places. And so I hear you, Andrew, on it's a little weird to have some guy from Baltimore, maybe, but maybe the, he has skill, qualifications, experience, and recommendations that make him the perfect guy for that job. And that's the experience and background, I think, that the Attorney General brings to that event. Same thing was true, by the way, for Lisa Monaco, right? Lisa Monaco was in the Enron team. The Enron team was constructed exactly the same way, right? They did a lot of that. I hired her. Right. So there you are. <laughs> so notwithstanding your presence on the team, there were folks. Oh, never mind. <laughs> All right, yeah, it's a really good point. And I, I want to double back to what you said, Andrew, about this coordination issue. And it dovetails with what both Paul and Katie are talking about, because we learned, I think it was this week, that Michael Sherwin, who was the initial acting holdover, who was working on it, he came to testify at the committee with OLA counsel in tow, and they got into it apparently saying you're weeding in our garden and this could make trouble for us in the case that we are building. Let me uh, jump to this one, though, in terms of how fast it's going. And obviously, we're looking into a black hole, but that's more visible, I guess, than it used to be. The idea is, oh, the department, it goes by the book. It takes so long, one step after another. With all the publicly known information out there, do they really have to go one rung at a time from the bottom. Why not jump right in at the level of, say, a Mark Meadows or a Peter Clark to try to make the case if you're really ultimately looking at political actors in Congress or even the White House? I mean, don't you think some of the public information kind of cuts both ways? I mean, Mark Meadows is the perfect example, right? So he's receiving these messages from Ginny Thomas, for example, saying we have to do something about our, our president. He's being treated terribly. He won the election, et cetera, et cetera. And his response is very empathetic, but he doesn't actually affirmatively agree with her or disclose in any way that he is working to do any of the things she's asked him to do. So if you bring that evidence to court. Or to a grand really jury. Good or to a grand jury, I mean, don't you think grand jury might think to themselves, but he didn't agree. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. So, I mean, I think even though the public the available information on somebody like Meadows or even Trump is really damning in some ways, and certainly in the court of public opinion, some of these folks may have already lost. I don't know that a grand jury, much less a jury, would say that this was definitive. 
I look at it two ways. I think there, there, there's a first issue, which is, do you have sufficient factual predication for inquiring about essentially what was going on at the White House? And was there, I'll use this term, active collusion with the people who were attacking the Capitol? I thought Katie would enjoy that. And assuming you have that factual predication, then I don't understand why you're not doing a Robert Mueller, don't play with your food, issue the subpoenas. And the search warrants, get all the phone records, right? Exactly. Get everything. And that just needs to be done really quickly. If you've met that, again, you have to have that. It can't be just sort of doing something with just speculation. But assuming you've had that, then I don't understand why it's not. I mean, yes, there's strategy calls about who you call and when. But in terms of getting the documents, I think that's something that's sort of no brainer. And there's a lot to get. And I think that we would know a lot. And it's a game changer right away in terms of the leverage on them. Yeah, that's my vote too. Yeah, I mean, I think Andrew used the right word predication here. You know, the question is, everybody keeps saying this, but what are you actually investigating? Right. I mean, it's easy to say, let's call all these people in. Let's figure out what they thought, what they said, what they wrote, what they heard. But you have to have some operating theory. You need you need a section on number on the file. Right. But don't we know what that is? Well, so the, the, the question is, did did the former president of the United States actively encourage people to violence? That's really the question. Right. No, I'm saying that's the question that they could be 30 steps away from, but why don't they start 10 steps away from it? But what does that mean? Meadows, for example. But start with Meadows doing what? Just putting him into the grand jury cold and asking him questions? Well, all the docs, but, but all right, the slate of electors, all the things he did there. Or he knows about the violence, all the things that happened that day. No, you don't put him into the grand jury, but what I'm saying is you don't have to... Start with the marshal who got beat up on, on yeah. Right, but that assumes, but look, first of all, they're, they're going to get a huge data dump from the committee in about a month. If yeah. They don't, if they don't know. That's, that's an important point. Right, yeah. I mean, let's, I want to be careful here because I and my law firm represent that committee yep. on some of its litigation involving efforts to quash various subpoenas. And I have no visibility, to be clear, into what their investigation has discovered, well, who they're going to call, and none of that. I'm, we're involved in a, in a very narrow window of of legal proceedings. But they have amassed, by their own description, an enormous quantity of evidence. So I get why the Department of Justice ordinarily is the first first pony out of the marn. And I think that that's probably the, the way it should function most of the time. But the fact is, at the moment, that's not where we are. Where we are is an extraordinarily large staff of congressmen and women and professional staff members, many of whom are lawyers, many of whom, like Tim Hafey, who is the the, the investigative counsel, is a former United States attorney, very experienced, and by the way, a former AUSA in D.C. who was Matt Olson's trial partner for a year, a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe they won't have done it exactly the way the department would have done it, and maybe the evidence won't have been developed in the, you know, bottom up, inside out, outside in, whichever, you know, visual metaphor you happen to like for these investigations. But they're going to get a ton of stuff starting in June and probably finished by Labor Day, right? And so if I'm the department, maybe not having gotten out of the gate as quickly as some people might have liked, I think at this moment, I'm not sure I would start doing my own sniffing around for documents and collection and all that sort of stuff, unless there were particular things that I really had an interest in. 
I mean, I hear you, Paul, that look, given where we are, I agree with you, but we all know it's better to not have it be in this position. And so you have to ask yourself, why? Why are we in this position? And was it a lack of foresight? Was it a lack of gumption? What what was going on that led to this happening? It is just not how, just take Enron, that is not how it proceeded. Well, that's true. But Enron, there was a spectacular financial collapse and, and there were a certain group of people who could have been responsible for that. Don't forget that the department's highest priority in the days and literally weeks and months after January 6th had to be the investigation and arrest of people who committed acts of violence. Yeah, but Paul, not to be critical, now that's what you say before, just before you're about to be critical, <laughs> which is A, if that's really what they thought, where were they before January 6th? And two, and again, maybe this is my Mueller training, you can walk and chew gum. This is not an either or. They're doing it now, in fact. They're right, right. And, right. And this isn't like, oh, we have limited resources. You had an attorney general who said, this will be the highest priority matter. So I hear you, by the way, that there are a lot of, of defendants, by the way, they made their lives a whole lot harder by not being there at the time. So they had to go to, to the public saying, gee, can you tell us who was mm-hmm. here yesterday? But there are a lot of open questions about why we're in the position we're in now. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't be incredibly aggressive. But given where they are now, I think that that's the best option on the table. Totally agree. Maybe they are starting to be that way. What we do know, I think we can surmise pretty clearly as they haven't been to date. So voices calling for the prosecution have been growing in number and volume, but a big one entered the fray this week, former AG Eric Holder. So what kind of impact does it have within the department? I think we know in general, they disregard political voices, but when Eric Holder comes out and says, you know, I think there needs to be some kind of criminal case response, what kind of impact does that have on the big players in the department? Any thoughts? So I do speak with some people who agree with Holder who are in the department, who understand why he said what he said, and they don't think that he's particularly wrong to say it. However, they all caveat it with, but if we can't build the strongest case possible in a way that looks apolitical, in a way that ensures that nobody involved has made any public statements that a juror could say shows bias, that that is actually the most important thing, because of course, the whole thing's going to be appealed. I think that to your point, though, this idea that Trump has shown no remorse and has been completely inappropriate in pushing the big lie. I'm very skeptical that any criminal prosecution would impact his chances of running for president or winning. Like, I just, I I think this idea that if only the Justice Department would prosecute this guy, the country could go back to normal, or if only the Justice Department would prosecute this guy, he wouldn't win the election or continue to have voter support. That is what I don't understand. I totally get why Eric Holder or a lot of other people would say what Trump did was wrong, morally wrong. Even Mitch McConnell has said what Trump did is morally wrong and that he bears responsibility for what happened on January 6th. But does anybody really think that prosecuting him is going to stop his political career or in any way negatively impact a party that already believes the Justice Department is out to get him and that anything they do is a witch hunt? So if people are really concerned about Trump winning re-election, shouldn't they be focusing on voting rights? 
focus on voting legislation state by state and focusing on what happens in the midterms. Yeah, look, I think it's a really good point, and you can't look to the department to save the republic in that way. Moreover, people are pretty short-sighted, just think, I'd love to see him in a jumpsuit without thinking through what happens after that. Quick question on timing with Trump, and then let's move on, but he's a political figure, of course, the biggest one, as Katie says, but he's not standing for election Does the department policy of trying to not influence elections in the 90 days or whatever it is before come into play with this investigation here? Or do they construe it narrowly and say, you know, Donald Trump's not on the ballot, so even if we're looking at him, it it won't matter? Or do they, in fact, sort of shut things down between August and November? I don't think they're going to shut things down. They may decide not to do things that are sort of less public. You know, you don't execute a search warrant on a sitting congressman's house necessarily 45 days before the election if he or she's up, right? That You don't necessarily do that. But the idea that they couldn't be operating behind the scenes, A, evaluating all the evidence they're going to get from the January 6th committee, but B, executing search warrants on people's email or getting their bank records or getting their travel records or putting lower level people in the grand jury or doing stuff like that, I don't think they're going to stop for that. That's the kind of thing that doesn't and shouldn't happen. Yeah, that's, I mean, the policy allows for all of those behind the scenes. And I don't think they're going to even be ready to do anything particularly public. Yeah. Although with a story of this magnitude, little behind the scenes things do generate the daily story on the cable stations because defendants talk and that kind of thing. So it's hard to be completely buttoned down. Yeah. But I, I don't see them getting close to violating the policy where you're talking about doing something with respect to a candidate or somebody very closely aligned with the candidate. So I just don't see that being something that they're going to be in a position to do, but, and also knowing this department, they wouldn't do. Yeah. The other thing that's kind of weird about this, I mean, when you think about it, right, the, the old 90 day informal rule, whatever, however you characterize it was born in an era in which campaigns didn't really heat up in the February before November election where there wasn't 24-hour cable media and everybody on Twitter all the time. There's a, a, a good friend of mine who was the chief of corruption in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey for a very long time, said to me once when I was U.S. Attorney, you know, there's always an election somewhere. <laughs> what he meant was that some somebody related to an investigation can always be in cycle. And so you, if you read that policy almost too literally, then you could hamstring yourself in, and be in a situation where it's almost impossible given where we are now. I mean, we're already talking about who's running for president in 2024, right? It's 2022. So is it 90 days from the election? Is it when people are prominently campaigning? You have to be very, very, very careful. Although we did learn in 2016 how something close to an election can really have an impact. And we can't forget that. Great point. So one question on a different topic that doesn't really fit anywhere else, but I just wanted to get your thoughts. So we're publishing this on Monday, the 16th, and the Michael Sussman trial begins jury selection today. Any thoughts about the case? (laughs) I'm very curious what Andrew thinks about this case. Well, I'll give you a pro and a con. So the, the best evidence I think that the government has as I understand it, is that Sussman billed his time when he went to the FBI to a client. And he purportedly said that he was not there on behalf of a client 
certainly those billing records would support the position that he either is committing billing fraud or he was there, you know, on behalf of a client. So that is, I think, the best case. That's, like, I think, strong proof that he was there on behalf of a client. That doesn't mean that he lied. It doesn't mean that he said that he wasn't there on behalf of a client. So, And that's, I think, going to be quite a mush because as I understand it, uh, Jim Baker, the then general counsel, has given three different versions of what happened, either under oath or you know to the government, so under significant penalties, but it, they're three separate versions. But I think the key from the defense perspective is I just don't understand how the government is going to prove materiality beyond a reasonable doubt. Every single FBI agent who I know who was asked the question, when you're given physical documents to follow up on that either show something or don't show something or provide leads, assuming they're authentic, it doesn't matter whether you found those lying on the street or whether your enemy you know, gave them to you or your best friend, all of that's irrelevant, especially in a case like this where you're going to take it seriously. So I they think they're all going to be like, it doesn't matter whether he said who he is representing or not representing. And by the way, of course, everybody knows that the firm he was at represented all sorts of people, including um, the Democratic Party. But it's just really hard to see how a jury is going to find that that's material beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, look, on the contrary, I'll, I'll, I'll do the con stronger because I think it is a real dog of a case. And a big part of the story is why is Durham bringing it? Is this all he's got? And if he loses, is he the heretofore respected bipartisan, if slow, U.S. attorney's reputation kind of in, in shreds? Because Look, an FBI agent all the time, as you say, sort of assumes, I mean, you take for granted that there could be mixed motives or you don't know why they're they're coming. And that's not the point. The point is, what is the evidence? And here, it's the weakest case of the statement I've ever seen. Some oral statement, maybe at the beginning, but he's not sure whether it was made as to if he's there for uh, a client or not. And take a step back, not just to the bona fides of the case, but to Durham's special role that the department is at pains not to interfere with, which is trying to uh, determine if there was spying on the Trump campaign by the Holder Justice Department. And this seems to have nothing to do with it. It's a, can I say chicken shit? A glass of, a producer, can I say, I'm going to say chicken shit case, even under the best presentation of the evidence. So what I don't see is why many champions of Durham and the prosecution seem to think that this is at all damning. So I think that whether or not Durham wins, I think a lot of people who support what he's done and are excited for this case are excited for the narrative that he's bringing to the public in this case, whether or not he wins or loses. The narrative, when you read the indictment, is like almost 30 pages long. To your point, it didn't have a lot of really concrete evidence against Sussman, but he makes a lot of broad accusations against Hillary Clinton during the campaign and all of the people around her between the Sussman indictment and the subsequent indictment, he's really telling a bigger story that undermines the narrative of the Russia investigation and whether or not it was important to have a special counsel, Mueller, come in and take an independent look 
at all the things that happened around the Trump campaign in Russia. And what the supporters of Durham are saying is, clearly from his indictment, beginning with the Sussman indictment, he's saying, well, that whole thing might have just been a hoax. I think the person who wrote about this most clearly, now keep in mind, anybody who knows me knows that I don't read op-eds like ever, but, but I, I, somebody sent me an op-ed by Kimberly Strassel. And you can disagree with her. She obviously believes that the Russian investigation is a big hoax and it was all, you know, like a witch hunt, blah, 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 blah. But she lays out how Durham has undermined the credibility of a variety of players in the Democratic Party. And if that is his larger goal, he is doing that with his case, even if he loses. So it's, it's a narrative project. That's not okay. That, that might even be his goal. You know, I mean, you just talked about Durham's reputation. He had a decent reputation among people who are sort of DOJ vets who knew him until he brought this case. But, and then people were starting to have the same reaction as yours. But we can't forget, right, that in September of 2020, Nora Dennehy, who right, was right, at right, his right. right hand in that investigation and who was one of his closest friends in the world, quit that team. And a total pro. Right, and has still refused to describe why she did that. And he issued a press release at the time that the IG came out and, and said that the FBI did not do anything wrong. Yes, there were definite issues in connection with a FISA, but that there was no wrongdoing. And he issued a press release, which was just unheard of, saying, we have a continuing investigation and we know more than you do. And that's when the investigation was still focused on the CIA, which it's moved on from. Yeah. Now. And it turned out to be some minor difference between whether the factual predication was an assessment or a preliminary. I mean, it was the most minor thing in the world, but the press release was written so that there would be a sense of don't listen to what the IG did, which to me was beyond the pale. Who does that? And I really thought that John lost his way on that. Um, but Katie, I do agree with you that there's a potential narrative that may be important and that might be useful in a report, but that's not what an indictment's for. Well, and will it come in though? I don't see Judge Cooper letting most of it in. So the judge ruled this past Saturday, keeping a whole mess of stuff out of the case, saying that it's irrelevant. So let me make one observation totally unrelated to the substance of what we just said. Katie Benner has, doesn't read Twitter but she reads Kimberly Strassel. Now, I find that juxtaposition- Somebody sent it to her. We need to know the somebody. And just horrifying. Just horrifying. I'm just saying. Y'all, first of all, I think not reading Twitter is a decision everybody has to make on their own. I think think everybody's going to come around to my point of view someday. And and it was my esteemed colleague, Julian Barnes, who sent me the Kimberly Strassel article. Thank you very much. Or op-ed, excuse me. I do like to distinguish between articles and op-eds. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay. All right. So we'll see. Yeah, but and that is the question, whether a confused polity will somehow see not about Sussman and materiality, but smoke that then goes back to 2016. But that, I think we're all agreeing, is a large part of what is not cool about the prosecution. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. And today, since we're covering investigations that could potentially reach the doorstep of the former president of the United States, we wanted to discuss the issue of Trump's criminal intent. 
What would the Department of Justice have to prove to show that Trump had the necessary state of mind to have committed crimes related to the January 6th insurrection? And in particular, what if he really believed that he had won the election? And to tell us about this issue, we are very pleased to welcome John Huertas. John Huertas is an American actor, perhaps best known for his role as Miguel Rivas in the hit NBC show, This Is Us. You may also know him for his roles as Brad Alcero in Sabrina the Teenage Witch, or as Joe Negroni in Why Do Fools Fall in Love? Prior to his acting career, Huerta served in the United States Air Force for eight years. So I give you John Huertas on what must be shown to prove Trump's criminal intent. How might a prosecutor prove Trump's criminal intent for January 6th? Donald Trump's conduct on January 6, 2021, on its face, seems to make out a strong case for federal indictment on the charge of obstruction of an official proceeding, namely, the vote that day to certify President Biden's election. But a lot of commentators express doubt that the Department of Justice can prove Trump's criminal intent beyond a reasonable doubt. The doubters raise the concern that some jurors could conclude that Trump really believed his own big lie. The first problem with that position is that it ignores mountains of evidence the January 6th Select Committee and others have developed. This evidence indicates that Trump was informed repeatedly, including by his own White House lawyer and Attorney General, that his election fraud claims were unfounded and that Biden had legitimately won the presidency. But the maybe he believed it intent defense is flawed for a bigger reason. It misconstrues the nature of the intent requirement and confuses intent with justification. Intent in a criminal case turns on the defendant's state of mind about a specific criminal act. In the case of a federal charge of obstruction of an official proceeding, the criminal act is in the obstruction. The intent question, therefore, is whether Trump, in fact, intended to obstruct the certification, whether directly or indirectly. There's no real doubt on that question. Trump's inaction for hours as the rioters raged makes his intent sufficiently clear, as do the new revelations of the seven-and-a-half-hour gap in the official phone log records, beginning even before the riot, at a time when it's known Trump was working the phones. Thank you very much, John Huertas. This Is Us airs on Tuesdays on NBC, and the series finale will be May 24th. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we'll tour the five types of tequila in under two minutes. Time is also important when it comes to tequila because each type is classified according to the length of time it is aged. The longer it's aged, the deeper the flavors and smoother the taste. The five types of tequila from least aged to most aged are Blanco, Hoven, Reposado, Anejo, and Extra Anejo. Blanco, or silver, is the youngest and purest form of the tequilas. It has the most authentic taste of the agave plant. It contains no flavoring agents and it can be bottled immediately or it can be aged up to two months. Blanco tasting notes include a little bit of citrus and a little bit of spice. Hoven, which means young, 
is also known as gold tequila. Fittingly, it derives its name from the color imparted from extracts that are added to change the flavor and the hue. Hoven tasting notes are also citrus and spicy, but they're a little sweeter than Blanco. Reposado, which means rested, is aged in oak for 2 to 12 months, giving it time to become a pale golden color and pick up some flavors from the oak. Reposado tasting notes are caramel and honey, but they can also include hints of vanilla, cinnamon, or chocolate, depending on how long it has been aged. Anejo, meaning aged, spends anywhere from 1 to 3 years aging in oak, giving it a smoother, darker, and sweeter taste. Anejo tasting notes are caramelized and sugary smooth without the sharpness of a Blanco. And last, but certainly not the least aged, there is extra Anejo, which is aged longer than three years, giving it a beautiful dark amber color. Extra Anejo's tasting notes are rich with nuts, caramel, fruit, and spice. So, if you're aged 21 years or longer, stop into your local Total Wine and more for a huge selection of tequilas that are aged and priced to perfection. So find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine and More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Okay, the Department of Justice has a very long reach and it's not unusual for it to have some role to play in the most important stories of the day and that's the case now, certainly. Let's start with the continuing repercussions from the leak of the Supreme Court draft opinion in Dobbs, the abortion case. So first, calls go up to investigate the leak and for the department to try to do it under the purview of of this 1950s law. Should or will the department actually get involved at all in the investigation of the leak itself? So just as like factual matter, the department generally investigates the leak of classified information with intent to prosecute because it's putting the U.S. government in harm's way, or it will investigate when grand jury material has been leaked, usually with an eye towards simply firing the leaker, not criminally prosecuting them. I, I, I think those are pretty high bars. Let's look at the other branch of government, Congress. Congress leaks to the press all of the time. As a way Every, of life. As yeah. a matter of course. That's, <laughs> and, that's a job description, yeah. Absolutely. It's the, the leaker in chief. So does that mean that we would also be investigating every time somebody on the Hill leaked to a reporter of sensitive information that could sway public opinion? I just, I think that the department looks at those two limited issues with an eye toward prosecuting in one and maybe firing somebody in another for a reason. Because if you start going broader than that, you're getting into a whole soup of investigations that don't even have a criminal statute attached to them. So there is no prosecution to be had. And here would be getting in the soup of the Supreme Court's procedure, you know, a whole nother branch and what they do, just a complete mess. Once the chief justice has said, you know, we'll handle this, I just don't see how the department <laughs> is going, that has a lot of business before the Supreme Court is going to participate. And to borrow a line, or I should say steal a line from Melissa Murray, the Supreme Court investigation, she analogized to the Crown announcing that they were going to be doing an investigation into racism within the palace. And she's like, you know, don't hold your breath. By the way, how awesome is she? She, uh, the quotable, notable. Okay. Yeah. I, I can't see it either, but I, by the way, 
People are assuming that it would never succeed. They won't know. I Having Cork there and the small circle of people involved and the fact that it's sort of professional suicide for who finds out, I think there's a real shot that the Supreme Court marshal, not known normally as the starchiest of law enforcement organizations, can actually ferret out who did this leak. Or leaks, we should say. We're up to, what, four, five, six of them? At, le- at least, exactly. But I, I just want to res- just comment on one thing that Andrew said about what the chief judge Justice said basically is we've got this and somehow the department might accept that as a signal to stay out when they don't otherwise have jurisdiction. But I think it's a risky principle, I think, for the Justice Department, because I could easily hear Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy or somebody else saying about something that went on in Congress, we've got this. And the department saying, yeah, that's not really your job. And we get to decide for ourselves anyway. So if it were something that were, I don't want to Put it where you put it on the egregiousness scale of Supreme Court procedure. But if it was something that actually was criminal and potentially clearly criminal, I don't think the fact that the Chief Justice or somebody else in another branch said we got this would be a reason for the department to back off. And do we all agree there's no, it's at least unclear that there's any federal crime here? One other thing on Dobbs, though, Biden comes out clearly in opposition to the overturning of Roe and supporting federal legislation. Outgoing Press Secretary Jen Psaki, she said some of the protection for abortion, should Roe be overturned, could come from the Department of Justice. So what can DOJ realistically do in states that are set to enact near? What's she talking about, basically? Two things I want to say about this. One was, she said that, but there was an article I read that in which the president, I actually wrote it down, that the president wouldn't be telling DOJ what to do. And the topic was on abortion pills. And that's the topic I'm going to come to to answer your question. There are a number of states, it's, it's not quite two dozen, I think. I think it's 19 or 20 states that have imposed some sorts of restrictions on access to what has become euphemistically or people call them abortion pills. Okay. Half of all abortions apparently now. Correct. 50, yeah. I think 54% or something like that. But there's some states that require you to pick up the prescription in person or require you to take it in the presence of a doctor or something like that. And there's a pretty decent argument, I think, that federal law, since the FDA last December, issued a permanent rule and a permanent approval for being able to, to get access to this pill. And presumably that with the federal policy, that preempts a lot of state law. The department could, or the pharmaceutical company, the manufacturer could, I suppose, or even somebody who wants access to the pill could, bring a lawsuit under federal law saying federal law preempts those state laws. I think the department, if it wanted to make a statement, if the administration wanted to make a statement about how it feels about this particular issue, the department could bring that lawsuit. The preemption lawsuit. Yeah. The preemption lawsuit. Sort of what they're not doing with marijuana. Except that's the opposite, right? Because marijuana is still illegal under federal law, but the department doesn't want to bring that lawsuit and hasn't. Right. So the interesting thing I thought about this, which I think implicates the kinds of things that this group can and should talk about, which is when Biden said um, he wouldn't be telling the Department of Justice what to do. My view is that the White House should never tell the department what to do about a criminal investigation or a criminal prosecution. But on matters of civil enforcement that involve issues of national policy on which the White House can and does have a view. I don't actually think that that is the right attitude for the White House. I had the same reaction when I was the U.S. attorney and Eric Holder or President Obama went out of his way to say that they hadn't discussed whether the department should defend the Defense of Marriage Act um, before the Supreme Court. And and there was some discussion either by Eric or by the president that that wouldn't have been an appropriate conversation. I think that that's totally wrong. 
I think in matters like that, the White House can and should have a voice. And as long as it's a situation that, unlike the one with the travel ban, where the acting attorney general, Sally Yates, thought what she was being asked to do by the White House was illegal or unconstitutional, I think that that is perfectly appropriate for the department and the White House to talk about. And if the president wants them to bring that lawsuit, then the Department of Justice should bring that lawsuit if they think it's a real one. Yeah, agreed. All right. We got a couple minutes to talk about one aspect of the other big story and going on now that, again, touches the uh, DOJ as everything does, which is Ukraine and the war of Russian aggression. So I just wanted to ask you insiders to discuss a little bit this notion of the klepto capture unit. So, you know, with fanfare, the department puts together, as it will do, a special group drawing on resources from different places with a fancy name. So the AG gave a speech that was really, I think, noteworthy for the sort of emotion of it and the outrage at what was happening on the ground. Is this a real thing? Are they really players in the overall prosecution or, you know, assistance of the war with Ukraine? Or is it more or less sort of moving of parts and a kind of a fancy name? These cases take a really long time. So they brought Andrew Adams over from SDNY to do this case. I think he'll do a great job. I mean, everything I know about him is that he's very aggressive. But at the end of the day, it's not like you can build a case against an oligarch overnight. And so when they did actually roll out a sort of an oligarch adjacent case a couple of weeks ago, where somebody had been accused of helping people violate sanctions, this was an investigation that began like more than five years ago. So they rolled it out. It was clear they wanted the world to know that they meant business with these sorts of things. But when you look at the date on which the investigation began, it did not give you fill you with hope that we were going to see um, charges against a variety of oligarchs who are helping Russia right now while Russia wages war in Ukraine. So look, I think that the department has lots of tools to be assisting, even apart from investigating Russian oligarchs. And that includes all sorts of intelligence that they can be sharing their CSIPs, which is sort of the computer crimes, cyber part of the department in the criminal division is is phenomenally good. And I think there's a lot that we don't see that I think can be very, very helpful. I tend to view these formations of task forces and working groups as signaling events that signals to the people in the department and to the public that something's being done. In general, I think they are a sign of weakness of the department structurally, because you really shouldn't have to do that if you have a group that is already supposed to be doing that. So I think that it unfortunately still is the case that it's necessary. And so I'm not against it. I think it has a signaling function. It has a way of sort of marshalling funds and people and resources to an issue, but it's unfortunate that it's not already being done within the structure that's there. Yeah, I I wonder... A, whether it is, right? I mean, they did bring a case they've been working on for five years, as Katie pointed out. And so it's not like they're not looking. Look, the truth is, if you make something illegal today, or if you make something illegal three months ago, whenever the sanctions were imposed, in order to bring cases for violating those sanctions, that people then have to violate those sanctions, then you have to find out about it, then you have to investigate it, then you have to bring the case. So the shelf life or the lifespan of that sort of episode is going to be a while. I do think that if it turns out that this particular emphasis that the department's now placing 
on this particular set of actors, these particular kinds of offenses, does augment the kinds of resources that the department has available to find out what some of these people have been doing for the last five years or the last 10 years, even if it turns out that they can't prove they're violating the current sanctions, that's still a worthwhile project from my point of view. And my guess is if they have real lawyers, and they clearly do, and real investigators, and they clearly do, who are very interested in pursuing these folks, they'll find stuff. Yeah. And I mean, that is really the question, right? Andrew Adams, who Katie mentioned, said outright that oligarchs are distancing themselves from Putin. That's evidence what we're doing is effective and worthwhile. On the other hand, I think all of us are uh, familiar with department rebranding efforts and combining things a little here, a little there that actually perform more of a labeling or signaling function. So that's the question. Is it a real deal? And, and maybe so, Paul, for the reasons that you're, you're mentioning. It's a little hard to know from the outside. Often, I think veterans in the department often feel a little jaundiced about the sort of task force happiness of government in general and DOJ in particular. All right. That's all the time we've got. We have one minute or so left for our final feature of Talking Five in which each of us has to answer in five words or fewer a question from a listener. And today's question comes to us from Ian DePesci, who asks, who will own Twitter one year from today? Five words or fewer. Anybody? (laughs) D-O-J. How many words is that, guys? Three or one? (laughs) Must get stuck with it. Oh, good one. George and Kellyanne Conway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I got to be able to do better than, than that. Um, I'll go with Walmart or PetroChina. All right, that is all the time we have today in another great quarterly review of the main stories coming from the Department of Justice. Thank you very much, as always, to Katie, Paul, and Andrew. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we will be posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. We're available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post one-on-one discussions exclusively for supporters with national experts about special topics. You can go there and hear, just in the last few days, discussions we posted with Dr. Jonathan Slater about the mental health crisis among young people since COVID, and with Steve Riley about QAnon-associated candidates running for offices across the country. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at what we've got and then decide if you might like to subscribe. 
Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez. Associate producer, Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. And production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to John Huertas for explaining how a prosecutor would go about proving Trump's criminal intent. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.